Good morning. Since uh, since changing hats, moving to deacon role, I'm I'm to preach about once a quarter, and uh, I have to say it felt like, wow, did we already are we already in the third month of the year? <laughs> it's it's my turn already. It seemed to come around pretty quick. <clears throat> Have you noticed that uh, society around us avoids talking about death? You ever think about that? I see some of you nodding. I think that they do avoid talking about death, and I think it's rubbed off on the church as well, which I think is unfortunate. It's an uncomfortable subject we'd rather not think about. However, in Scripture, in Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. You know, I think Solomon said that because death gives us a perspective on life we don't get otherwise. It helps us realize that our time here is actually short. And it encourages us to think about our future, our future beyond death. You know, we often think of ourselves as a physical body, probably because we look in the mirror and that's what we see. And we are a physical body, but we tend to think of ourselves as a physical body with an eternal soul. I think it's actually more accurate to think of ourselves as an eternal soul living in a physical body. We are an eternal being, created in the image of God. We will be somewhere for eternity. You know, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about the future. He spent a lot of time teaching about heaven and hell, about what happens after death. Recently, someone suggested that I preach from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. That's what I want to attempt to do this morning. Um, Before I go to verses 19 to 31, I want to back up just a bit to get context. Um, In Luke chapter 16, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples, he's teaching his disciples, where we see that in, chap- in verse 1 of chapter 16. He also said to his disciples, and he goes on, and there are two stories given here in this chapter, and neither of them, neither of these two stories that Jesus tells in in Luke chapter 16, are called a parable either by Jesus or by Luke. Now, if you look at the, I'm going to guess a lot of your Bibles have a header in them that say the parable of whatever at the uh, rich man and Lazarus. But I'd like to suggest this morning that this is not a parable, that these are probably actual things that happen to actual people. These are real people. One reason I think that is uh, in, we get to uh, verse 19, or I'm sorry, 20, we'll see that 
The story is told of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus doesn't name people in any of his parables. But in, in this specific story, the, he's talking about a specific person. This is about Lazarus. <clears throat> he has a name. So in, in Luke chapter 16, I'm not going to spend any time in the first part of the, of the chapter. Just mention that he's, he as the, tells the story here of the unjust servant, the steward who loses his job, and he, you're familiar with the story, he, he loses his job because he's been ripping his master off, and he deserves to lose his job. Well, he quickly goes to his masters, to the people who owe him, and he has them cut their bill down and just pay, he changes what they owe, so that when he leaves there, people will welcome him. They'll want into their homes, and he'll be cared for. And Jesus commends not his dishonesty or his crookedness, but he, he says that, or the, the master commanded the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly for, I mean, verse 8, the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Jesus continues, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fall... When you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Here, Jesus is talking, what he is commanding is using possessions, money, to build friendships here, to build relationships, using it for other people. And <clears throat> moving down, I want to just note verses uh, 13 and 14. I'm going to jump into the middle of what Jesus is saying just for context here, he's talking about being faithful. The person who's, who's faithful in, in what's small will be faithful in large things. And then verse 13, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Verse 14, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And Jesus goes on to speak directly to the Pharisees. I'm going to jump down now to verse 19 and pick up reading here. Remember that the Pharisees are the elite. They're wealthy. Elite. They pride themselves on knowing the Scriptures, the Old Testament, and following them to the T. They think, but Jesus had points out to them actually just above here where they don't follow the scripture. And this, this last section, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, warning them about how they're living. <clears throat> Jumping in, in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that when the beggar died, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in hell, 
he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. <clears throat> now, it's easy to start out reading in these first two verses, and, and I can feel pretty critical of the rich man. By the way, it's interesting, this, the New King James says uh, he fared sumptuously every day. That's not, when's the last time you used the word sumptuously? <laughs> I, I don't usually, but he, one translation said he lived in lavish luxury. He had everything you could imagine. But before I criticize the rich man, I need to look at myself. I wonder, how does most of the world Look at North America. Yeah. Alvin says millionaires. Do they, do they view North American Christians maybe the way Lazarus viewed the rich man? Last week while I was studying for this passage, the Lord reminded me that I can have the same attitude that the rich man had. He had everything he needed, everything he wanted, but he wasn't helping the man laying right at his gate. Last week I was working in Manassas. I was just around the corner from Darren and Lou, and um, I pulled in at a gas station to get some gas. And I was there filling up, and a young man came across the parking lot toward me, and he said, "Hey, man, can you spare a couple bucks?" And I'm ashamed to tell you my, my knee-jerk inner reaction was, hey, that's my money. I work for this. Why should I give it to you? And fortunately, I didn't say that out loud. What I said aloud was, what do you need the money for? And he immediately, he, he had a plan. He immediately said, China King. And he listed for me what he's going to order there. And he said, they'll give me a whole plate full of food. And he knew exactly what it cost and how much, that it was 75 cents extra to get the sauce. And he, so he had a ready answer for me. Well, I felt Wayne talked about sensing the Lord speaking to him in his heart. That happened to me too. I, I immediately felt like the Lord was saying to me, whose money is it? Isn't it all my money? And... I stopped, I pulled my wallet out, 
And I gave it to him because I felt I should. And he thanked me. And as he ran across the road leaving, the Lord reminded me of a, a verse in Proverbs. He who giveth to the poor lendeth to the Lord, and he shall repay him. Is it my money? Not really. Who gives me the ability, the strength to work? You know, who, who does that? It's not, yes, I need to take care of my body, but God gives me the ability to earn money, and it's really all his. How do I view what I have? I told you earlier, I believe Lazarus is a real person. Um, usually, Jesus doesn't name people in his parables. For instance, give an example, uh, a sower went forth to sow. That's a familiar parable. That's how one begins. He doesn't usually give him a name. Lazarus here is named. Lazarus was laid at his gate, it says in verse 20. That tells us that the picture I get is that he had to be carried there and placed at the gate. And he's placed there in hopes that he'll get some food. And he's got sores. Interesting to note that uh, Luke was a doctor, and Luke notes that he had sores. He's got open sores that the dogs are licking. But this rich man isn't concerned about him. <clears throat> So Lazarus, full of sores, was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He would have been happy for anything. Now, both of them die. Apparently, the, the beggar dies first, and then the, the rich man also dies and, and was buried. These guys, they couldn't be more different in life. The contrast here, the just the wealth and the poverty and sickness. And they are extreme opposites in their, in their death as well. The, the rich man, we're told, was buried, and there would have been probably a lot of pump with this. There would have been quite a funeral procession. And it doesn't tell us what happened with Lazarus' body. It tells us what, that the angels took him. So he was cared for following his death, taken by the angels, but it doesn't tell us what happened to his body. Was, was it buried? I don't know. We don't know that. I'd like to note that in, in verse 23, it says, In being in torments in hell, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. I believe verse 23 proves that the idea of soul sleep, have you heard of soul sleep? The belief that uh, at death people are simply sleeping or not conscious until, uh, they, until the judgment, that they're, they're just asleep. I'd like to say that is not true. <laughs> um, You'll notice in, in verse 23 that he was conscious, he was aware, and he was in torment. There is a conscious existence beyond the grave. 
says he was in Hades or in hell. Some translations say hell, some say Hades. In the New Testament, Hades is always the place where unbelievers go. Um, it is never where believers go. In the Old Testament, both believers and unbelievers went to Hades or Sheol. There's two words used. Hades is the Greek, Sheol be the Hebrew. But there's, there was a great divide between them, which Jesus describes here in this story. Uh, many theologians believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, he took the believing, those believers with him into paradise. I based part of that on uh, Luke 23 and verse 43, when you'll recall the, the two thieves who were buried on each side of Jesus. I'm buried, I'm sorry, were crucified on each side of, of Jesus. And when the he says to the one thief, today, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. For the Christian, upon our death, we will be ushered into the presence of Jesus in paradise. We will be with him immediately. And I can't describe that to you. I believe it's beyond what we can describe or imagine. But it's a fact. I look forward to that. What Jesus told us, <clears throat> oh, in, in Matthew 25 and verse 41, Jesus tells us that hell was prepared, not for people, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. <clears throat> so there are two places where we will go, one or the other, upon our death. And our life here is over. I want to note several things that the rich man experienced after death. Things that I'm taking from the passage here. In verse 23, he saw. He was aware. Verse 23 as well, he recognized people. He named people and he could communicate. We see that in verse 24. He could remember his life. Father Abraham told him, remember in your life. And so he, can, he could think back. And his choice prior to his death was final. It couldn't be changed. I believe that's why it's important for us to consider what comes after death while we are here. In verse 24, I find it interesting that the rich man says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Have mercy on him, the one who didn't have mercy on Lazarus. The one who didn't have mercy on others wants mercy. And he asks him, of all people, to send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water. And Lazarus is the one, he sees Lazarus as someone who should serve him. His attitude hasn't changed. His location changed, but he still views Lazarus as someone who should serve him. And Lazarus is the victim of his neglect. Where these two men ended up, I believe, would have totally shocked the Pharisees who were listening. Remember, Jesus is speaking to them. This would have shocked the Pharisees because they had been taught from the Old Testament that Riches were a sign of God's favor 
And they're thinking, how can a wealthy Jew go to hell? Doesn't make sense. He's wealthy. That's a sign of God's favor. God's looking out for this one. They would have thought they knew where he was headed. Jesus had just announced, if you look back at, in Luke 16 to verse 16, that a new order of things began with the preaching of John. Look at that. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. Now, material wealth was not necessarily a sign of God's blessing or favor or approval. Financial wealth or the lack thereof may be a test of my faith and of my stewardship. God may be testing me, and it can be through much or through little. We notice in in verse 25 that... uh, everything the rich man wanted and spent his money on and enjoyed was connected to time, to here and now. He had had received good things in his lifetime and Lazarus evil things, it said. So everything that he enjoyed was connected to here and now, what he invested in. When his physical life ended, his connection to time ended and he lost all those things because they were all in the present. He had not invested in eternity. He was completely unprepared for eternity. Lazarus, meanwhile, had experienced bad things, poverty, hunger, sickness. He was an invalid. And apparently those things drove him to a life of faith. Looking to God, looking beyond his physical life. If accumulating wealth is my highest goal, I will have my reward in this short life. And that will be it. If I believe God's word, the way I use the resources God has given me will show that. And my reward will be in eternity. It will go on beyond the grave. I will not take things or money to the grave with me. They will do me no good. Notice in verse 28 that the the rich man turns evangelistic. He says, send them to my brothers. He doesn't want what he's experiencing is, is so horrible. He doesn't want his brothers to face the same fate. But notice what he's saying. He's not just saying he's looking out for his brothers. He's implying that he wasn't adequately warned. He's implying that God did him a disservice. God didn't warn him properly. If somebody would have warned me, I wouldn't be here is what he's really saying. He's blaming God. God, it's all your fault. I find it interesting to see how Father Abraham responds. He said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, or the Old Testament, let them hear them. And he says, no, but 
if someone goes from the dead, surely they'd hear that. They would respond. He says, no, I'd like to note, it's pretty important what he says here in the last verse. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. If someone doesn't believe scripture, they won't believe a miracle either. Just a short time later, Jesus raised another man named Lazarus from the dead. And the religious leaders plotted to kill both Lazarus and Jesus. They recognized that he had raised him from the dead, but they wanted to kill him. It didn't change anything for them. They were determined not to believe. Another example, later Jesus himself rose from the dead, and they didn't believe on the only one who could save them. You know, some have asked, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? I'd like to say I don't think God sends anyone to hell. Now, hear me right. I'm not saying no one goes to hell. I'm saying I believe people make the choice. We choose. God allows us the freedom to believe in him or to ignore him. Those who choose to believe Satan's lies instead of God's word will spend eternity with Satan in hell. Those who choose to believe God's word will spend eternity with God in heaven. It's my choice. It's not that God is just arbitrarily deciding what's going to happen here, but I choose. He has given me the freedom to choose. I will make choices based on what I believe. Another way to say that is I will act on what I believe. All of us have sinned. There is none righteous. No, not one. We have all earned hell, eternal separation from God, but... The good news is, and I go back to these next couple verses repeatedly myself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 1 John 1, 9 as well. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. I have that word circled in my Bible. From all unrighteousness. God stands ready when I turn to him in faith. He will forgive and cleanse all my sin and there are many. 2 Peter 3 Verses 8 through 11. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, 
What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Heaven and hell are both real places, and every person will go to one or the other. Ultimately, my eternal destiny is my choice. Will I believe God or Satan? I conclude with the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? and lose his soul. Would you stand, please? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us enough to give your life, to die in our place, for buying us back so that we can be with you for eternity. Lord, I pray that as we go from here, may each of us think, as we make choices, go through life, may we think beyond our short life here and plan for eternity, invest in eternity. We can be with you forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.